Hey there, it's Jamie Scrimger here, and you're listening to the Kick-Ass Stepmom Podcast. I'm a wife, a mom, a stepmom, a coach, a conversation opener, and a BS caller. Eight years ago, I found myself sitting on the bathroom floor, bawling my eyes out, wondering what the heck I was thinking, marrying a man with three kids and an ex-wife. Look, don't get me wrong. I was madly in love. The kids were great. But being a stepmom is, well, it's just complicated. If you know, you know. As a 26-year-old with zero experience in the parenting department, I went to the internet for support. But I was disappointed with what I found. So I decided to create the type of support I was looking for. Raw, real, solution-focused conversations about all things motherhood, stepmotherhood, and living a kick-ass life. Life can be hard, really freaking hard. But it's entirely possible to thrive amongst the tough stuff. Each week, I will bring you tips and strategies and mindset shifts to inspire you to live your own version of a kick-ass life. We'll bring you along as I create my own. Let's do this. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Kick-Ass Stepmom podcast, guys. What's up? Welcome. How are you doing? I'm going to tell you, this episode is going to blow your mind. I am about to share a conversation that I had with such an amazing woman named Candace Sampson, and her story just is truly unbelievable. Like, I cannot believe that this happens. Actually, no, I can. I can believe So Candace is a writer. She is a blogger, a TV and radio personality. She has had various roles in the influencer and marketing space. She shares her passion for travel and food on her blog, Life in Pleasantville, and she is the host of the popular radio show, What She Said. But in this episode, we get really personal. We talk about Candace's experience with divorce and how the legal system failed her and her family in such a big way. Now, we're going to dive into the family court system in Ontario and Canada. We talk about what we think needs to change. And whether you live in Canada or not, this is going to resonate. We talked about how the system fails us. We talk about how shame-inducing the idea that, like, conscious uncoupling and, like, best friend co-parenting scenarios and, like, all these posts about how it should be can just cause, yeah, a lot of guilt and a lot of shame for those who it's just not in the cards for. Like, it, it is not possible for everyone. This is such a good one. If the episode resonates with you, be sure to share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, I'd be super grateful if you could leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Guys, these ratings and reviews are so helpful and help us to keep bringing you these amazing conversations and creating this podcast for you week after week because these are the things that we need to be talking about. I want to tell you about Stepmom Magazine. When I first became a stepmom, I always struggled to resonate with the support out there. There was just this huge double standard. Moms were encouraged to keep it real and stepmoms were judged for doing the same. And amongst the overwhelming amount of resources for moms, there really wasn't much for stepmoms. That resonated with me, at least. Except for Stepmom Magazine, that is. In fact, almost 10 years in, Stepmom Magazine is the only resource that I revisit time and time again. So Stepmom Magazine is a monthly online publication for any woman who's dating, living with, or married to someone with kids. The articles are written by all the leading stepfamily therapists and coaches, and the support is second to none. Stepmom Magazine has tons of information on topics like co-parenting and dealing with stepkids and dealing with the ex and disengaging and raising teenagers and being a full-time stepmom and having an ours baby. They cover it all. If you're a stepmom listening to this podcast, you need to check them out. And you can use the code JAMIE20 and you'll save 20% off anything and everything in their online store. 
So that's all subscriptions, back issues, and stepmom eBooks. This magazine is the longest standing, highly regarded stepmom resource for a reason. Go to stepmommagazine.com and use the code Jamie20 and save 20%. All right, Candace, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Jamie. I have so many feelings about this conversation. I am excited because I want to hear your story more than just from reading about it online. And I'm also just so excited to hear just the opinion that you have on the legal system right now and the changes that we could make because you know, there, we'll get into it in this episode, but there's just, it's such a flawed system and it really screws so many people over in life. And yeah, this is, this is going to be good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be having these conversations and to be honest, it's really just, I'm just sort of able to really have these robust conversations about it because my story is largely coming to a close Uh, my personal story, but because my personal story was so intense, I think it's really important that I keep talking about it and keep informing people and trying to make changes because of what I went through. I would, I would hate to see somebody else go through this. Mm -hmm, 100%. And I love that you did wait, right? That you weren't in the trenches of it all. And with all the emotions that you're going through, like, I do really think it's important for us to process things and to kind of get our head on straight and to be able to reflect back and then share, right? Because when you're sharing, when you're just deep in the trenches, all these emotions and the turmoil, sometimes, sometimes we haven't fully processed what our perspective is, if that makes sense. Yeah. And when you share from a place of pain and upset, it no matter what, people are going to interpret that how they would like. I have seen people so often share in the moment raw and real, and that's great. But, you know, you will have regrets later. I did share a little video of raw and real. You know, we'll get to that. But but that's about it for me. I've been sort of almost four years now in this process, and I've been very largely silent about it on social media, because I want to be able to share from a place where I can inform and not just be entertainment for people. That is such a good point. So let's kick it off. Where do we even start? (laughs) The beginning, maybe. The beginning. So yeah, (laughs) you were married and then maybe just, just start from there. Give us a bit of your story. Sure. So, you know, I was married for 19 years very happy in my marriage for a number of years. And then as happens in most marriages, you know, people change, things change. And we were just on two entirely different paths and, you know, thought about leaving, um, had left at one point, came back, always, you know, always way out. How is this going to affect my children? How is this going to affect my life? Can I work it out? Uh, I don't want to be a quitter. I want to make my marriage work. You know, you go through all of these things. And I just reached a point where it was so hard to be in this marriage. And there was a, there was a boiling point and I reached it. And then that was it. The marriage was over. So it was from that point that it actually really became crazy. And my experience with the legal system from almost the very beginning was crazy, like literally crazy. And and I had no idea 
how bad it was and why would I? I had never been in it. But once you get in it, man, oh man, you see the flaws just pop up everywhere. And so my story, you know, I left, uh, I went, I, I got a lawyer. I decided to go through the proper channels, do this the proper way. My ex-husband decided he was going to go the path of non-participation, non-disclosure. And so here we are. It's um, March of 2022. I left in June of 2018. I will, I have 28 days and I will finally be divorced from this conversation. It is taking me this long to get to this point. And that, that four year span is a dangerous time as I've learned, because you're not, when you're not divorced, and you're still in that separation period. If you don't have a separation agreement, which I didn't, if you don't have a divorce decree, all of these things in place, you're vulnerable. Even though you're living your life in a good way, you're still vulnerable to what that other person is going to do because you're still tied to them. So in my case, I have now been saddled with a tremendous amount of debt just to get out of this marriage which is not what I wanted. That was not what I wanted. I wanted an equitable split. But because he didn't participate, it just, it was impossible. It was impossible to get that equitable split. Yeah. And can you back up to just the, when we're talking about the proper channels, just so everyone is is clear, if maybe they haven't gone through the process, typically you you separate, you take a look at all of your assets and your debts, and you know you divide things equally. There's we're in Ontario, there's an equation in terms of child support and whether there's spousal support. Like it's all on paper, looks like it's a good system. That is so it. You nailed it. On paper, it appears that we've got this figured out. It's the implementation and the enforcement that we are failing on so badly. Mm-hmm. So did you started with mediation. Well, so I went to, I, I visited a lawyer. So I guess I should first say that, you know, Within a couple of weeks of leaving, there was a dialogue that happened. I knew who I was divorcing. I knew the person he was. So I moved everything immediately to written communication because I never wanted my words twisted. I wanted everything in writing. So, and in one of those communications, you know, he told me, you know, fuck you, use the language, you know, you'll never get a dime. You came into this marriage with nothing. You'll leave with nothing. It's my house. On and on and on. These things, by the way, came back to haunt him. I knew that I was going to have to secure a lawyer because the level of anger coming from him. I also thought he's angry. I understand that. There is anger in divorce and he'll calm down. There's a cooling off period. He'll calm down. And then maybe we'll be reasonable about things. I went to a lawyer in August on the recommendation of somebody who, you know, recommended a lawyer and, and my lawyer, there were all kinds of warning, warning signs there as well, but my lawyer was late getting to my case. So it wasn't until November that we tried to arrange mediation between his side and my side. And at that point, my ex had a lawyer. So we arranged for mediation in November of 2018. And a couple of days before that was supposed to happen, he canceled. So then we had to go to trial. We went to our first case conference, which is the first step in a divorce. And so we agreed on a sum of child support 
didn't ask for spousal support at that point. I just asked for child support at that point based on an amount he declared to the government as his earned income. He's self-employed. So, right. So there's a corporate side and a personal side. We based child support based on the personal side, because that's all I could prove at that point, because I didn't know what the corporate books looked like. So we agreed on that. We went our separate ways. The judge said, Come, you, you have, I think it was 90 days to get your disclosure in. So I got my disclosure in. Um, his never came. What did come was like, you know, blank pages or pages with document pages missing, nothing corporate. It was just a mess. And I had to sort through to try and piece together and do like detective work on this. Because I could have my lawyer do it at an extreme cost or I could do it. So I went through the process of doing this, doing what I could to sort of get to where his real income was or could be. And, um, and so that's what we had to do. And then, so that was our first case conference. Then we went, it was another year before we could even get back into a judge. Got back into a judge in 2020 just before the pandemic hit. And the, I was asking for an increase in child support based on the numbers I had come up with. And I was looking obviously to advance this case through to the next stage. The judge at that time said to him, all right, where's your disclosure? In court, on the record, he said he had it all. He's just gonna have to gather it together. So the judge said, okay, I will give you another 30 days to get this all together. And it didn't come. And she warned him in the court. She said, do not put your head in the sand on this because I will strike you from the, the proceedings if you don't participate. At five to five on the day it was due, he faxed through, I don't know, something like 150 pages, blank, upside down, not in order, you know, again, missing information, so it takes another, you know, period of time for me to sort through, try to determine if this is duplicate information, if it's new information. It was basically nothing. It was a nothing burger that was delivered. So we go back to the judge. We say, we actually now don't have any of this. So strike him, right? This was in around May of 2020. Strike him with what? <laughs> well, we, we wish it was a physical striking, but in the court proceedings, it means to be struck from the proceedings, you are no longer allowed to participate in your own trial. This is not a minor thing to happen. This is actually quite big. Courts hesitate to do it. They don't want to do it. It is a measure of last resort. So, but they had no choice in this matter. So I assumed... 30 days would come and go, or, you know, the time it took us to go through this stuff, that immediately he would be struck because that is how life is supposed to work. You don't do something, a consequence happens in a timely manner. But what ended up happening was it was around May, we went back to the judge, so we have nothing. It wasn't until the October that she struck him. Then we could proceed with an uncontested trial. So we pulled all the documentation together that we had. We go back into court, couldn't get back in until March of 2021, which from that point, my case sat on a judge's desk 
from March of 2021 until December of 2021. And the only reason that she finally picked it up was because we had to go to her with an emergency motion because I received a notice that the house was being seized on Christmas Day by the bank for non-payment on a line of credit. So it's like, I'm just sitting there thinking, the house was it. Like this was the only asset that we had to share. And if that went, I would have no legacy for my children. I would have no financial security for myself. You know, you, and I, this was December, you know, coming up on December. It was two weeks to Christmas. So on December 13th, she came back with a motion and vested the house in my name. So my daughter and I, same day, hopped in the car, drove to the house, called a locksmith, got into the house, and immediately I knew something was wrong. The lights wouldn't come on. There was a smell in the house that was just unreal. And I flashed, I, because there was no lights and it was dark, I shone a light down to the basement and I could see the water in the basement. And I just thought, this is, this is unbelievable. So I left, went to my parents' house, came back the next morning in the light of day. And that's when it hit me just how badly the house had been left. So he had abandoned the house, essentially, cut the power off from the inside, cut the sump pump. Three feet of water was sitting in the basement. The basement floor was floating. There was mold growing on every surface of the house, walls, furniture, kitchen counter, cutting boards. The basement was unbelievable. And so when the restoration guys came, I just, you know, you just react, you just go into reaction. And so I called a, a mediation company and they came that day. They, they, you know, surveyed everything. And I said, how long would it take for a house to get to this point? And he said, for this much mold in the house, it was easily like this for at least a month. So he knew this was coming. And in one of those earlier emails that I had mentioned to you, you'll never get the house. That's pre pretty much what he was securing was that I would never get it. So yeah, it was just, and at that point, I just, I just kind of snapped. And so that's when I did go public with a with video I went on my personal Facebook page, but I made it public for people to see. And I mostly did that because I just, I thought this is disgusting. I'm so tired of living like this. And I just, people need to know what I'm going through here because this is just wrong. <laughs> so wrong. And, uh, and then that set off a whole other chain of events. So we can get into that, but I'm sure you have some questions now because <laughs> I just talk nonstop. No, I like, I, I'm, I keep talking. Yes, this is so good. So I just want to clarify, he did this on purpose. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he did this on purpose. You got to keep, I, I have questions, but let's, let's just keep going. So then what happened? Okay. So I went, so I went public with this video and mostly because also the bank was now seizing. So this was December 13th. The bank was seizing the home Christmas Day, which has got to be the most bizarre timing ever. Like talk about Scrooge stuff. But to the bank's credit, it this is just auto-generated. They don't, you know, didn't pick Christmas Day to be mean. Mind you, Christmas Day could be like a blackout date. <laughs> just could be. 
could be, it could be easily done, but you know, I'm going to give them some credit. So I had to go public because honestly, and this is terrible to say, but I felt because I had such a large following on social media, I might get their attention if I went public and have them delay. And they did. They, they talked to me. They were appalled by the story, to be fair. They, they were not like they just were appalled. They couldn't believe it. They wanted to help. They were very sympathetic. And so they came back and they said, you know what? We're going to pause any action on this for 90 days. We're going to give you a chance to catch your breath. And for that, I was so grateful because that gave me some time to now think, do I want to save the home? Do I sell it as is? Where do I go from here? There were so many things to think about. Plus, I was trying to have a Christmas with my children and my new partner and his family. And, you know, it's just a lot at Christmas time. So that that little reprieve was good. Um, so as it happens, as we're sitting here now, and I'm talking to you on March 25th, I'm back in the house. It took us some time. We had to remediate all the mold in the basement so that was like $30,000 in total estimates of damage to the house are somewhere in and around $160,000, not insured. He had let the insurance lapse on the house in July of 2021. And not that they would have covered it anyway, because it was deliberate, but the it, there was a clear plan here. The insurance had lapsed in 2021. Smoke detectors, carbon monoxide detectors had been pulled in the house. You know, it was just, it was insane. And so I had to go back to the judge, obviously, right? And say, okay, look, now look at this. How are we going to do this? Because he had stopped paying child support. He had never paid spousal support. And the asset, which was supposed to be the equalization of, of, of our assets, had now been destroyed and I had no insurance on it. So where do I go from here? Plus he's shown, proven that he's just not going to participate. You can tell him he's going to pay, but he's not going to. So I had to go back to the judge and say, what do we do? So just this week, and I'm talking Monday, <laughs> it's Friday now, Monday, or sorry. Yeah. Monday. No, it was Tuesday. Wait a minute. Tuesday. I got, I, I received the documentation that said, from the judge, and it's a 30-page ruling. I was actually quite surprised, 30 pages. And she went into everything. And ultimately, what she did was she said, I am going to pierce, and I'm using her words, I'm going to pierce the corporate veil here. And uh, she seized all of the assets and titled them in my name so that I can now sell them to pay for the damages. And try to at least recoup some of the money that is owed to me in this process. So that's where we are as I'm sitting here talking to you. So seize the assets, like the house or other assets in your marriage? No. So like work vehicles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At the RV, the motorhome that we had, we had a 40 foot motorhome that was in his name. That is now in my name. He had a Harley Davidson that was in his name. That is now in my name. Uh, all of those assets that I can now sell. Now, unfortunately, those assets are not in the greatest of condition because they weren't cared for. They were neglected, as most things were. However, it will. I should be able to at least sell it for to, to repair things. Like I said, all of the floors had to be torn out of the house. All of the moldings had to be torn out of the house. 
because we have to search for mold in the house and you can't see that unless you tear things out and look for it. So there's significant damage here and I need to pay for that somewhere, somehow. And is the house fully in your name too? The house has been titled totally in my name now. So here's the other part. I now, I have a mortgage on this house, obviously, because the line of credit, he'd stopped paying. Now the line of credit initially was in his name, but from a marital standpoint, when you put, enter it in the balance sheet, half of that debt would have been mine and it would have come out on the equalization of the, of the property and everything. So at the end of the day, when everything was sorted out, if, if it had been done properly, half of that debt would have been mine and then the equalization would have been made based on that. All fine. But I had to absorb the full amount to save the home. There was a lien from CRA for unpaid taxes that had been put on the home. I have to pay that in full to pay for the house. There was a writ of execution from TD Bank on a couple of things to which I had to pay that amount. So in total, around $420,000 worth of debt that I have to absorb to save the home. And, and so that's, so it's, it's a disaster. <laughs> Have you heard from him? Like, are you guys in correspondence? You, he's, he's just gone. So, so incredibly, incredibly, in, like incredibly, cause I know this story's public and it's out there. I'm not going to name his name. I'm not going to out him. Nobody gets to dox him. Leave him alone because, you know, like, as I said, go on and live a miserable existence. Like you've chosen this path. It's all yours, but it's a lonely path. I'm sure. That being said, incredibly, he reached out to me through email in January saying that he was going to come by to collect his things. <laughs> what did you say? I said, please don't ever reach out to me again. <laughs> Any communication goes to my lawyer. Your stuff and it like was destroyed in the house you destroyed. <laughs> like, and anything of value is currently in front of a judge being decided. So no. All your shit is on Kijiji. Yeah. And, uh, and then the last time, and then and this was uh, on March 8th, I received another email uh, after saying, don't contact me. He sent an email to my lawyer and then forwarded me that email, which is contact. So anyway, he asked, he said that I was illegally holding on to his items and that he would call the authorities. Have at her, buddy. So we just said, call the authorities, please. <laughs> oh my gosh. I am so sorry that you had to go through this and your kids and just what a freaking nightmare. Ladies, I have some big news. I have been quietly working behind the scenes to revamp my ebook, 101 Ways to Be a Kick-Ass Stepmom. So years ago, I wrote an ebook with 101 of my top tips and strategies and mindset shifts to thrive as a stepmom. And as time has gone on, some of these tips have felt less relevant, some are no longer aligned, and I have some new strategies in my tool belt. So I decided it was time for an update. As my step family life has evolved, my perspectives and strategies have as well. And the update is ready, and it has more tips. 101 has turned into 120 ways to be a kick-ass stepmom, and the ebook is now available. So there are tips on setting boundaries, disengaging, self-care, 
marriage, your relationship with your stepkids, discipline, conversations that stepmoms need to have, confidence, dealing with the in-laws, dealing with mutual friends with the ex, dealing with a high-conflict ex, why your stepfamily won't function like a first family, and more. So you can grab your copy at www.jamiescrimture.com forward slash ebook. And if you bought the first version, don't you worry, your updated version is in your library. So grab your copy of the ebook at www.jamiescrimture.com forward slash ebook. Enjoy. I was just thinking, is there anything, if you were to go back when it comes to setting things up in your marriage or like, or even when you left, is there something that you would do differently or is it just, it is what it is and it's just a shitty system? I think about that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously. And I've had four years to think about this a lot. And it's funny because as I sit here and I recount the story for you and tell you the story, there are massive gaps missing in here. Let's remember we had a pandemic hit. I had teen daughters. In the meantime, I'd actually taken in an extra child, a friend of my oldest daughter, whose mother had abandoned her. So I had three teens in my house for a time. And uh, limited income, pandemic absolutely wiped out my income. Prior to leaving my marriage, I was making almost just over $100,000 a year. And in 2020, in income, I had made a total of $16,000, sorry, 2021, $16,000, which is so far below the poverty line, it's, it's appalling. But I had teenagers who were reeling in a pandemic and from a divorce, it's very hard to focus. I was dealing with this nonstop insanity coming from the other side of not being able to settle it, trying to navigate a system of divorce, a family court system that is so broken. It was, it was, it was crazy. Like it was really crazy. And so, I mean, there was a couple of times where I was, I, I thought about ending it all. There was a couple of times I was so despondent and it really, that's what I mean. Like I can tell this story and I can laugh now, but I'm getting emotional right now because I tell you, it is so hard to, to navigate this system as a single mother. And so I get it now, like on a level that I get it. When I hear people talk about how hard it is, yeah, it, it's brutal. And I called the village, like I say this all the time, I called the village, the village did not come. The support networks are not there. They're just not. And the family responsibility office, which is supposed to be enforcing these payments, they're essentially useless. You know, trying to navigate that system is frustrating. So it's really just everything about the system is almost, like you said, it looks really good on paper. But if you have one person who just doesn't participate, there is nothing you can do. (laughs) So (laughs) to answer your question, if I could change things, oh my God. I mean, it's a, if I could warn people, I can't change anything. I can't change shit, but I would warn people to get your financial affairs in order. If you think your ex-partner is going to be vindictive or spiteful in any way, shape or form, I hate to even say this, but you've almost got to be more, you've, you've got to be that way too. You've got to protect yourself. It's so important. And then in terms of the system itself, I think there's so, there's so much that needs to happen. Like I joke about this now, but I think that the first visit for 
people who are getting divorced, no matter how amicable or, or high stress it is, the first visit should be to a therapist before a lawyer. Because I think emotions, people's ability to control or manage their emotions has a lot to do with how a divorce case will play out. Uh, and my ex-partner clearly was not dealing with his emotions. He was coming from a place of anger and spite, and he just couldn't wrap it. And I will be honest, I think he has really, unfortunately, done so much damage to himself here. And the courts could have prevented that. They could have actually saved him from himself in this whole story. It's not my job to save him, but the courts could have actually did something to help. I agree. And, and even just how long things take, you know, we obviously don't have the same the magnitude of the situation, but we've been dealing with the courts and the process. I was, I'm going to say it's like four years now, might even be, might even be five. I don't even know. Just like the case conferences and, you know, the back and forth with lawyers and the letters. And, you know, I think when people think, oh, well, we're just going to go to court, I'll take them to court. If you're not experienced with this system, you don't know that that's not going to happen next month right? Like if we go to court, even in our situation, it could be like next year before you go in front of a judge that can make a decision. When you have these case conferences, it's really just a judge weighing in, in hopes of getting the two parties to come up with a deal on their own. Like that's, that's the point of these case conferences. And there's just so many freaking case conferences and in-betweens that nothing really gets solved. I mean, I Ultimately, I think the courts, as you say, want you to sort it out. But if you like, I love, I love this, by the way, so many people have said to me, you know, not friends, obviously not family, but you know, people who weigh in on the internet want to know what I did to him. Well, what did you do? Like, there must be some sort of justification for this extreme behavior. You know what? Let's just, this just popped in my head. This is like sidebar. You as a woman, what did you do to him to make him to react like that? If you had done this to him, it would be what a bitch. Like, what a crazy bitch. Like, just the double standard there, too, right? Like, what did you as a woman do to what deserve this? To, have this happen to you? Oh, and, and the other comments are, well, you got the house, so shut the fuck up. Like, what? <laughs> like, like, I have children. I have a legacy I would like to leave them. I spent, no kidding, I spent two university education amounts in lawyer's fees over the last couple of years. This is this affects my children's legacy. Nothing pisses me off more than when somebody says to me, well, you got the house. No, I didn't. What I got was a headache. And it will take me at least five years to get this house to where it's sellable again, to see any of the money, even a little bit of the money that should have been mine. Like that, that line of thinking is so broken. It's that's the stuff that really gets me hot. But yeah. And you know, what really gets me hot is, and it's something you've talked about in one of your articles too, is like, you know, online and in the space, it's, 
there's a lot of conversations about the importance of, you know, co-parenting and having a healthy co-parenting relationship and like these, you know, friendly divorces and like conscious uncoupling and, and all of that. And that's great. It is, it, you know, it's something you said in your articles, like that's the ideal. If, if everyone can get to that point, but there's so many things that have to happen to get to that point, you know, for mediation to work, Two people need to attend. They need to be willing to sit down and have an adult conversation and go back and forth and compromise and, and, and problem solve. Further, to be an amicable co-parenting relationship, you need to have open communication and respect and for people to act in a certain way. But it's not always possible. And then when you're in these situations and that's not your, your situation and that's not possible for you, there's almost like this guilt, right? Like there's almost like this shame around well, why is my divorce like this? Or is, why is our co-parenting relationship have to be like this? But there's a lot of parties that need to be in the right space in order to make that happen. Absolutely. And so, you know, time and time again, I have heard it takes two, there's three sides to every story, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, those sayings are trite and so cute, but you know what? They're really only applicable up until the, more, the marriage ends. Because once the marriage ends, it takes one. It takes one person to derail the entire process. And it's based on bad information, right? There is this unofficial playbook that's passed around in divorce. And it's it's bad. It's terrible. It's detrimental. And I, I encourage anybody, if you receive any of this information, to please not do it. You know, and it's it's the wording. It's the take him for everything he's got or screw her over. She deserves nothing. And this is how you do it, right? You don't, like, he he did that. He did that. He fired his lawyer. He self-represented. It's not going to play out well for you. I'm telling you, it's not. But because so many people are doing it, and it causes these delays, then there's the other things. There's the financial abuse that happens, where the other party wants to wear the, the, the other partner down with the financial costs, the lawyer's fees. That's right. And somebody, and eventually one party has to cry uncle and say, I'm out. I can't do it anymore because they've run out of funds. Or it just become, it gets to a point where it's not worth it. Like if you're fighting for say, even like $40,000, $20,000, but when you're paying a lawyer $350 an hour, which always seems to be rounded up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at what point is it even worth it, right? Sometimes, well, it's, it's just, it, it just gets so exhausting and so expensive. You learn very quickly too, that your lawyer is not your friend. And every time you have a conversation with them, you are being charged. It's cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. You send an email, that's a 15 minute charge. You send, you know, you call, that's a 15 minute charge. A few times I got bills and was just gobsmacked. I thought I haven't even talked to my lawyer in six months. What did I just get charged for? You know, uh, because you get like, you almost get like PTSD that you don't want to even respond to your lawyer or or ask a question because you know, it's going to cost you, as you said, $350, you know, to ask that question. So yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. So in terms of the changes in the legal system, like what would you like to see happen? Enforcement is, for starters, there's a couple of things that need to happen. So the first thing is that needs to happen is we need dedicated, and I did a podcast actually with this on Canada land, 
with Sarah Larnack, and I learned some of the things that you know she had found in her investigation, and that there's 70,000 divorces in Canada, that there's not a consistent family court in each province. It differs from province to province. They lack the ability to identify financial abuse, which is abuse. No matter, it's a power play, and the courts need to start identifying that. So we need more cohesion between the provinces, I think, on family courts, because sometimes there are judges who are ruling on cases who are not family court lawyers. You know, they might do, it's not even their area of expertise, you know, and family court lawyers need to be educated to identify financial abuse, to look at cases where a partner is, you know, not participating purposely to, to hurt the other person. All of these things, those, those judges need to be trained to identify, especially in cases where there's child abuse, perhaps, or, or physical abuse. All of that has to be looked at. So we need more judges on the bench and more family law judges. And because there is a huge amount of cases in the system, then we need enforcement. We need people to actually enforce and to enforce in a timely manner. And I know all of these things come at a cost, right? But if the government could just look at this to go, okay, wait a minute, this is going to cost us, but what's it costing us on the other end when we don't do things, when we don't add in more enforcement, when we don't put in family lawyer, family judges? Because in my mind, what we're doing at this point is scandalous. We are churning out broken people every single day in the family court system. And broken people, as we all know, go on to hurt and break other people. And as a society, we have to ask, are we doing the right thing here? And we're not. We're just not. And it becomes generational, right? Think about the damage that's been done just in my family alone, right? My daughter's view of partnership and marriage is just absolutely destroyed. You know, they, they just look at this and think, no, thanks, not interested. And I do not blame them. You know, their relationship with their father destroyed, absolutely destroyed. So what does that mean for my daughters? I hope, I hope they go on and have rich, full, happy lives. I'm trying to model all of the things that they need but I don't know what's going on in their heads, right? That's hard. And that's just my little family. That's just my little family union. We're talking 70,000 families that, you know, this is happening on varying levels. But my story, which I think is extreme, is not as extreme as you might think. And that was the surprising part to me that when I went public, the people coming to me saying, oh my God, this happened to me. That happened to my mom. That happened to my dad. You know, it's insane. It's insane. So yeah, so we need more judges, faster enforcement, prompt enforcement. You know, again, from the time a deadline is missed to the time an enforcement happens, we could be talking six, seven, eight months. And in the real world, that stuff is real. Like. I remember calling Fro saying, he hasn't paid child support again. What are you going to do about this? Well, there's nothing we can do because he's self-employed. Or at one point it was like, well, we've been told we're not allowed to enforce anything because of COVID. And I thought, well, COVID hit me too. <laughs> yeah, people still have to eat. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> like, but so you can't do anything during COVID? This doesn't even make sense. So yeah, so there's so much, but yeah, I think those are the two biggies is like I said, on paper, it looks great. Now you just need to put the actual action behind the words. Yeah. And speed it up. Like it's just, it, it, especially when someone's abusing the system or manipulating the system or, or trying to delay things that costs people money. Like, like that's the, that's the thing too, right? If this was done in a timely manner, even if it did result in the same thing, maybe, maybe this all happened in the same way. What if you had half of the lawyer's fees that you had or even a quarter, right? Like what if you could just go through the process so much more quickly? Because when someone's delaying something, there's nothing anyone can do and you should be able to get your divorce. You know, I know people, I have friends right now. It's just like they're the divorce. It's like, you're, you still aren't divorced. Like what is, how are people, people supposed to move on with their lives and have financial stability, right? That's a, that's another excellent point because so in this time that I was seeking a divorce, I had no agency over my own life. I could not buy a home for example, well, A, my income got was decimated through the pandemic. But prior to that, I couldn't buy a home because the banks wouldn't give me a mortgage because I was still not divorced. I still didn't have an official separation agreement in place. And they wanted to know with, you know, with certainty that I wouldn't have to say pay him support in any way. So all of that really just made it so I was stuck. I couldn't make a single decision on any aspect of my life, move town, stay in town, you know, any of that. All I could do was just sort of tread water and try to keep my head above it. And a few times I, I definitely fell under. So yeah, I mean that, that whole aspect too, is that you are, you lose control of your own life and you are, you are not capable of making decisions because the courts are holding it hostage or your ex-partner is. Ultimately, your ex-partner is. The courts are, are are not helping, but yeah. How did you take care of yourself during this? Because you, first of all, I hope you know how freaking strong you are for coming out of all of this on the other side and, you know, having the, just the bravery to tell your story and to open up these conversations. But what, what did you do to take care of yourself during this time? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wish I could say like, oh, I, I did this, this and this. Like there were certain things that I did, but I don't know. I think it was, I was sort of primed to be able to deal with this from a lifetime of just doing things a certain way. And, you know, I, I, I'm never down for long. You can knock me down. I'll get back up again. I, I, I just know this about myself. I, even when I'm crumpled and I'm not kidding, I'm not being dramatic here. Even when I'm on the floor in a little fetal position, crying my eyes out, something in the back of my head always tells me, I'm going to feel better in the morning. I'm going to get up and, and take this bitch on. I know I am. So that was always there. You know, years and years ago, I took a Dale Carnegie course, I think when I was like 20. And it's always served me really well about living in daytight compartments. And it's just compartmentalizing your life in such that, you know, if there's something super stressful happening over here, but you can't do anything about it, then go live in the place that the things you can do. And so I did that a lot. You know, one of the things my daughter did, and this was like in a couple of weeks of leaving the marriage, she started a playlist on Spotify for me that was called Divorce Mood. You can go follow it. I'll give you the link. Yes, I will link it for everyone. It's basically just angry, excuse the language, fuck you songs that just, I did not want 
I did not want melancholy. I did not want, oh, sad. No Adele. <laughs> I wanted like, I am, I am going to rise from the ashes and, you know, I am going to win. And so that song, that playlist, I played a lot. And my girlfriends were huge. Like I have incredible girlfriends who I could call and say, I, I just feel so defeated. I just don't know what I'm going to do, you know? And they rallied like when, oh my God, when the, the house and I went public, they started to go fund me for me. They raised $20,000 in that GoFundMe in a short period of time. I mean, these women just are my rock. They're everything. And so that was huge that they were able to do that. And just so supportive. My very best friend in the world was calling around arranging to have the furnace replaced for me because I couldn't even think straight in the first few days. And so she lined that all up. I mean, your friends are really everything. And therapy, you know, I had to stop because I couldn't afford it after a while. But therapy in those initial days were huge because you really do have to do self-reflection on what you own as, you know, your, because when a marriage ends, it does take two. So, you know, you have to go, okay, what do I own in this? And what am I going to allow him to own? And then how am I going to move forward? And I was so frustrated with the whole process and of him not participating. And I remember my therapist saying to me, you're never, ever going to see eye to eye. And the moment you realize that, the better off you'll be. Because I was still looking for that moment where we were going to have that eye to eye moment and we'd figure it out. And, and she just said, it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. Accept it. And, and it's true because we just, we were never going to. So, so that was big. So yeah, I would say, go, I, I really think people, before you even see a lawyer, you should see a therapist. And I think the family court system, I've said this before, I think the family court system, if they don't want to deal with this, then they should get out of this business and let us like go to town because they've turned it into the wild west anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, like get involved, start taking some action here, do things to make people's lives better. <laughs> You know what Darren and I, so Darren and I like to sit around and have a, have a glass of wine and a beer and, and just talk about how we would change all systems in the world. It's just like what we like to do on a weekend. And we, we talk about how we think that because every, every situation is different, right? Like as much as you, they want to just like plug everything into a calculator, there's so many different factors that need to be considered. And we think everyone should ha- be assigned a caseworker, kind of like at children's aid or something. So everyone gets a caseworker who it's almost like as you're going through, it gets to the point where they can almost make recommendations or it's like binding arbitration. Like they, they can make that final decision based on your unique situation. And then you can go from there. I love that you said that because this is something that I've thought about a lot. Uh, My youngest daughter hurt herself cheerleading. Very dangerous sport, by the way. Oh, my goodness. But anyway, she hurt herself cheerleading, ended up with a back injury, chronic back injury. She had to go to the chronic pain clinic at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. And I always say it was one of the best experiences because we walked in and immediately, I mean, she'd been living with this pain for a couple of years. And when we went in, she was assigned a doctor, a physiotherapist, a pharmacist, a psychologist, and then there was one other person in the room. And there was a team of five people. And they all worked together to collaborate to get her through this. That is what should happen in divorce. Same thing. Somebody to help with finance, therapy, 
law. You know, you have a team of people that collaborate together. What a better system that is. Because what we're doing is right now is we're just leaving it to two people who are broken and hurt. Pissed off. And and pissed off. And we're saying, sort it out, you know. Go mediate. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. You, yeah, whatever. And, you know, if you, one person's reasonable and one person's not, what do you do? Nothing. You're screwed. This is where that team, that's right. That's where that team would be so crucial. And you could call on the person you need the most in each part of it, right? And so this would have to be a system that would be paid and unpaid because not everybody could afford it, obviously. So if you could afford to pay, then you will pay for that system. If you cannot afford to pay, it will be subsidized. But I think that is a way better way to deal with this than the current state of things, for sure. There you go. There's the solution (laughs) from women. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Women need to run the world. (laughs) But that's a different podcast for a different day. That's a podcast for my show. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, speaking of your show, where can everyone find you? Well, I'm on weekly. What She Said Talk airs in Toronto, Ottawa, and Surrey. And it's all women's issues. Everything's from a woman's perspective. And my personal channel is Life in Pleasantville. So that's my blog. And you can find me on my Life in Pleasantville on Instagram and Facebook. And so I'm kind of all over. But if you Google Candace Sampson, I'm easy to find. Yeah. And we will link everything. Thank you so much for taking the time. And please, please never forget how strong you are because you are definitely a force. And I'm just super proud of you for coming out the other end of this because you, yeah. You've been through the ringer. Thank you. I mean, I, somebody, there's a couple of things about that. I just want to quickly address about being strong is, you know, my friend to me the other day, she's my best friend. She said, I'm so proud of you. She said, you, a lot of people would have given up and walked away. And so that was really nice to hear. But somebody else said, I said, you know, I'm kind of tired of being told how strong I am <laughs> because that strength doesn't mean that it's easy. It's a heavy load. And I'm happy to be able to set it down now to tell you the truth. Well, here's to one hell of a future for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Candice. That's it for this one. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, and if the podcast has been resonating with you, I would be forever grateful if you would head on over to iTunes and give the show a rating and a review. And if you know someone who would benefit from listening to this episode, be sure to send it their way. Now, if you are craving more, head to my website, jamiescrimger.com. There are lots of blog posts and podcast episodes and resources available for you over there. And if you really want to dive in, I do take on a limited number of coaching clients every month. So you can book one call or work with me for three months. Either way, we will create an individualized plan for your unique stepfamily situation. Remember, sitting around biatching about how hard being a stepmom is won't make being a stepmom any easier. If you want change in your life, it has to start with you. Chat with you next week.